This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I'm talking to, to no one. Or, or maybe you. You, the listeners. Um, I'm also mm-hmm. talking to Jelani Carter and Travis Larchuk, my producers. Welcome, Jelani and Travis. Hi, Thanks Peter. for having us. Thank you for having us on this show that we all make. This is a <laughs> yeah. very special episode of Recode Media. I've wanted to do a mailbag episode forever. I've done this podcast for years. Now we're finally doing it. Thanks to all of you who sent in questions. And if you like this, let me know because we don't have to do it once a year. We could bring it back periodically. Might be Maybe it's kind of fun. Um, anything else we should know before we jump into this, Travis? Uh, no, we, you know, we're just, uh, Jelani and I are going to go back and forth reading the questions that the listeners sent in. I think mm-hmm. everyone who listens to this podcast <laughs> will understand what we're doing. No, now, we came just... up with this format. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and Travis is the one who's always telling me that, um, when I'm discussing something with someone and we use jargon or lingo or a concept that maybe isn't familiar to everyone that we have to stop and explain it or ask the guest to explain it. So that's what we're doing here to get very, very meta about it. Did I go, mm-hmm. do I do it? Did I do a good job of explaining the, the mailbag <laughs> format, Travis? <laughs> you did great. Okay, um, great. Did I guess we should explain job. what, what mail is. Yeah. And what bags, <laughs> what are. bags are. Okay. Um, so do you want me to kick it off, Travis? Yeah, go for it. Uh, this is from Allison in Brooklyn. Uh, what do you perceive the trajectory to be for Twitter in 2023? I just received a Twitter blue invite and I don't know what that is. How can someone use Twitter without feeling they're betraying their ethical beliefs? Will more people turn to Substack? Do you think Twitter will continue to feel like a party where a few people are left and will eventually make an exit? Is Twitter in hospice? Can it be rebranded? I did a BBC interview right when right when Elon Musk was, was buying Twitter or officially taking control of it and the newsreader, they call them, um, asked me to make a prediction for Twitter. And I said, chaos. And they said, well, can you be more specific? And I said, no, chaos. And I got to say, that was a pretty good prediction. And I think that's going to mm-hmm. be where yeah, Twitter's at for a while. I think at some point, both our general interest in Twitter and the antics of Elon is going to die down. I think it's already dying down. People are sort of sick of the the Trump-like daily provocation that's coming from Elon Musk. I imagine Elon Musk will also tire of provoking people at some point, but I don't think the general contour is going to change, which is that a lot of people who've used Twitter for a long time are going to see less value in it, either because 
they don't want to be there. They don't support Elon Musk or his politics or anything else he's doing the platform, or frankly, other people have left. And so you have this unvirtuous cycle. I've definitely noticed, um, and this, hap- this was happening before Elon Musk took over Twitter, that more and more of the conversations I used to partake in on Twitter were, were going away. They were well-documented. They go to Discord or newsletters or Substack. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of that is going to happen. I don't think there will be a one-for-one Twitter replacement. I don't think anyone's going to build anything like Twitter. Again, tw- the people who built Twitter didn't mean to build Twitter the way they built it. It was a, Remember, there was an SMS product that became this thing. And there are very specific use cases for Twitter that I don't think will be replicated anywhere else, and they'll just go away. And I think that's, you know, it will suck for individual people who relied on Twitter to get X or Y. But remember, this is a service that didn't exist until 2006. Most people weren't using it until well into... The 2010s, um, mm-hmm. and most of the, most internet services have a half life, and I think Twitter is on the the downslope. Is that a fulsome enough answer for that that multi part <laughs> yeah, question, mean, Peter? Yeah, what I do you make so. of the ethical side of it of folks who aren't so into Elon struggling with whether to continue using Twitter or bail out? I think it's like other other high profile complaints about services people use that are owned by people they dislike right yep. facebook is one of them uber under travis kalanick used to be one and the correct thing to say is that the people who are making those complaints i don't want to be part of this service because this person uses it are a very very small and vocal minority but they it can be meaningful right uh, it turned out after the fact that uber really did see a drop in, in bookings um, when people were protesting travis kalanick during the, the beginning of the trump era definitely People dislike Facebook and or Mark Zuckerberg, even if they're still using WhatsApp all the time and Instagram all the time. Um, It's a real danger of associating a product with a personality. Um, And no matter what Elon Musk says, Twitter will always be connected to him until he no longer owns it. I actually have another question going off of this question. Putting the business part of it aside, from a user experience angle, like, what would you change about Twitter to make it like your ideal version of Twitter? I mean, I've been using it for a long time. Um, I wish that some of the people who were using it when I started using it were still using it. Um, and that's because I was there early enough for like you could really actually interact with some of the people you want, in my case, wanted to write about. Uh, it was used by tech people and VCs, and they were saying lots of interesting stuff. And eventually they all wised up and left. So it's several iterations of Twitter since then. It's fine. I mean, I think for my purposes, I can use it to say stupid stuff. Um, I try to not do stupid stuff late at night where I can get myself into trouble. I can promote <laughs> things like this podcast and stories I've written. I'm also very aware that this is not the place that's going to generate the most attention for any of my products. I'm kind of okay with that. It can entertain me or enrage me in equal amounts. And I'm a word person, and it's good for that. Um, I've recently been contemplating, even for this this podcast, I tried uh, soliciting uh, reader responses using Instagram, which I've never really done before. And sure mm-hmm. enough, people responded right away. Um, anyway, you were asking me what would change. I, I, I think it's fine. I don't want it to be a video platform. I don't want it to be a payments platform. I want it to be a place where I can type out short messages, people can respond to them, where I can read short messages and news updates. That makes me pretty happy. I can also read what people had for lunch and whether there's an earthquake in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> what do you guys want in your Twitter? Uh, I just want to say, so the idea of uh, having a 4,000 character limit does not appeal to you at all. 
<laughs> no, that's called a Substack. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been using... Uh, <laughs> I am younger out of the two on this show. I've been using Twitter since I was a sophomore in high school. And it's pretty much been half of my life on Twitter. And it sucks seeing it go in this direction. It seemed like such a crazy downturn. I'm friends with a lot of creators and like that whole ban on not being able to use uh, outside links to promote your stuff mm -hmm. was definitely very crazy. And a lot of my creator friends were hurt by that. I think since then they reneged he, he on He switched that. it back. I did, that that yeah. ban lasted less than a day. But yeah, there's yeah. always going to be crazy stuff going on as long as Elon Musk Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's interesting because I've, I've had a few friends that used to do uh, software development on Twitter. And they were saying like this whole process of him just like testing out stuff and taking it away so quickly is kind of unheard of because they would naturally they would test out products for months in advance before they would push out, you know, different features. The fact that he's just kind of like A-B testing in real time is very crazy to them, which is pretty insane as a consumer seeing it happen. But I mean, I I'm gonna ride the the wheels until the wheels fall off, but it is a you're gonna be a dead weird... ender like me. What about you, Travis? Yeah. You 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 send out the occasional snarky. <laughs> I I send out the occasional tweet. You know, I I think I would prefer if people who uh, incited insurrections could be kept off of the platform. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> that's that's pretty much my main beef. Yeah, that's a fine point, and I, I will say as a straight white guy, I don't uh, get harassed on Twitter. I got harassed on Peloton the other day. Peloton was sending out naked what? lady spam followers. <laughs> wow. um, I'm not the only one. Um, but yeah, my, my, my Twitter experience is, is basic. Like, the only people hurting me on Twitter are myself when I say something stupid, mm -hmm. and I realize that's not the same experience for most people. And I do think that Twitter's well-intentioned efforts to clean up the platform have thus have have then well obviously we know that's have 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 helped provoke elon musk into buying it because he doesn't like them i think that's a natural tension of any platform totally. okay that's all our twitter talk for the day I next think. question yes mm -hmm. edward writes in there's so much talk about the future of the big entertainment streamers and what the new year holds for them but what about more niche value add plays like masterclass What's the opportunity for these types of channels and will they increasingly become attractive acquisition targets along the lines of New York Times grabbing The Athletic for its subscriber base and eventual overall contribution to ads and sub retention? That's an interesting one. I've always been interested in niche products on the Internet, niche subscription products more recently on the Internet. Substack is a great example of how to get a relatively small number of people but meaningful enough to create a business to pay for something they can't get somewhere else or want to support in some reason. Patreon is another version of that that uh, works well for podcasts. It's hard for me to imagine niche subscription video working just because of the cost and difficulty of making good video or video worth paying for. That said, there's tons of people obviously, you know, making stuff that's really interesting all the time on for free on the likes of YouTube and TikTok. So, you know, I don't want to rule that out entirely. I do think it would make perfect sense for a Netflix to buy, say, the library of Masterclass. I think I just saw a, a tweet about Netflix, see a tweet about Netflix putting up some exercise content, right? This is the kind of stuff you might pay for somewhere else and they're gonna bundle it into Netflix. You'll get it, they don't need everyone to watch it, they just need some meaningful number. I think the problem there for the seller is 
they're not going to get anything close to the value they think they've created with their business because Netflix is mm-hmm. just going to look at it as there's this many hours of content that this many people will watch. We can balance that against whatever we pay for documentaries or this many episodes of Friends. It's all the same to us. And there's no extra special sauce there. And so if you're masterclass, who's not only paid to create all that content to begin with, but has invested in marketing, remember when they were in like every YouTube ad and every Facebook ad to converting those customers, all, all of that value gets erased. So I can definitely see the Netflixes of the world picking up some of these specialized assets, but I think then they just get chucked into the the general sort of swirl of what's available on the platform. So I don't think it's increasingly attractive, I guess, is a double-edged sword. Maybe it's increasingly attractive because it's cheap and easy content for a newly cash-conscious company like Netflix to acquire. I just imagine doing like a core workout and then um, an episode of the Great British Baking Show. Absolutely. You can stack <laughs> Immediately them. pop side. Mm-hmm. You can stack. I mean, there's no reason not to, right? And, and Netflix has, you know, like there wasn't there wasn't a booming market for documentaries until Netflix realized that was something that they could buy really relatively cheaply and that people wanted to watch. And that's, you know, by the way, I think a good thing. You know, stand up comedy. I was, I'm just repeating stuff I did for my uh, uh, <laughs> Land of the Giants uh, season a couple years ago. But they certainly have the capacity to find stuff and distribute stuff that seems niche, but actually has a bigger audience than you'd think if you can reach 200 million people in one fell swoop like they can. Uh, Next question. This is from Dario in Switzerland. Uh, My question relates to old media. Uh, I grew up with magazines and newspapers. We as a family invested a significant amount of money every month into print products. Today, that has all changed. The print industry is a pure publishing business and online. I still visit the websites uh, of the same publications, but I don't want to spend money anymore. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Me neither, Dario. I no longer want to spend money, but please spend money. Will this industry ever figure out a way to solve this fundamental problem? What is your take? Will maybe a technical standard emerge that finally will solve microtransactions both on desktop and mobile? Or will mobile dominate and as Apple slash Google taxes everything, this will never happen? So I took a, a look at this question So I, I in advance. Um, I think what he's saying, and this is something people talk about all the time, I just said I wouldn't talk more about Twitter, but there's something Elon Musk talks about, which is how come people have to pay to read something behind a paywall or subscribe to read something behind a paywall? Why can't they just pay 10 cents or 15 cents Mm -hmm. or whatever? Mm -hmm. And this is something the industry has been chasing for a long time because a lot of people feel this way, especially the consumers, right? I don't want to rip off the Washington Post. I, I think their work is important. I don't want a subscription, but how about 10 cents to read this article? A lot of people on the tech side believe, like Dario, that this is a technical problem, but it's not. It's a business model problem. The publishers uh, in their current incarnation would like you to generate recurring subscription revenue from you. And so they'd rather have one of you pay them X number of dollars a month for a year than a lot of you pay 10 cents once for an article because they're much, much better off getting you to subscribe and get recurring revenue. And that is where they are focused. Um, prior to that, they were they wanted you to read the stuff for free so they could sell ads. They still sometimes want to do that, but that's less attractive. So it's not a tech problem. It's not trying to figure out how to pay for this or even what the Apple tax would be. It's how can a publisher be convinced that selling their stuff for 10 cents a pop is better than $10 a month? And you can work out the math for that, and it's pretty difficult. All that said, the fact that 
there's a consistent consumer demand for this means that we should keep trying to figure it out. A lot of people point to the success, relative success of the Apple News Plus product, which does give you access to the Washington Post and a bunch of magazines basically for $10 a month. And so that's kind of getting at what we're talking about. You're getting access to a lot of stuff, but even there you're paying a recurring subscription fee. That money is divided up between the various publishers, but at least they're getting consistent revenue from you as opposed to hoping that you're gonna come by and pick up an article for 10 cents. I'd also suggest that we worry about sort of what happens when people are incented to write uh, clickbait stuff for traffic. I think if you get into a world where your success as an individual writer, reporter, or publication depends on how many people buy a particular article, that's also a problem. But people still play with this idea. They want to chase after it. There was a Dutch company called Blundell that was pitching this maybe eight years ago or so. The New York Times and Axel Springer, big publishers, invested in that company. Mm -hmm. It didn't work, but I wouldn't say it will never work. I just think the people who suggest that they're going to bring it to you like Elon Musk has talked about, like the guys behind Post, one of the Twitter competitors have talked about, generally haven't sort of thought through or really talked to publishers about what's involved. I also can't imagine that a 10 cent microtransaction, given all of the complications with like processing fees and all that, would be that appealing to no. Mm-hmm. No, no. And, and also you think about what it teaches you, right? Like, oh, a, a New York Times story is worth 10 cents yeah. or eight cents instead of, oh, the New York Times is worth $15 a month. I don't think it sits well with a lot of people. Again, the, you know, there are models for this. And in the old world, uh, particularly in Europe, selling magazines on newsstands one at a time was a significant part of the business. Not so much in America, although Janice Min, who we had on a couple months ago, one of our best uh, interviews of the year, I thought, talked about the glory days of Us Magazine, Us Weekly, where once she passed a certain number of newsstand sales, each additional magazine that she sold a la carte was worth like a dollar or something. And so they really, really racked up when you could sell a lot of things Mm -hmm. at a newsstand. But we don't live in that world anymore. Thanks, Dario. This next question is from Michael. Peter, can you help listeners understand why RSNs regional sports networks you got it thank you went from (laughs) i'm into sports went from seemingly such a great business and why wouldn't they be a good acquisition target for a netflix let's say it would seem to be a way to get very sticky subs without having to pay up for crazy league rights and mike is from long island hey mike from long island in case so that informs know. your answer <laughs> so mike from long island is talking about networks like yes in the new york area which is what you need to have if you want to watch yankees games all the time and i don't so because i don't like the yankees and i was gonna gas on about this and i'm still gonna gas on but i thought it'd be also be useful if i consulted someone who actually knows what they're talking about this so i reached out to john arand the excellent reporter editor over at Sports Business Journal and asked him to weigh on this. And here is his short answer. Thanks, John. Regional sports networks face the dual problems of ever increasing right fees they pay to teams combined with shrinking distribution that affects their affiliate revenue. It's a problem that's much more pronounced at the local level than national level because RSNs have much less scale. So they're bad businesses to be begin with, is what John is telling us. And then John goes on to explain that the RS business would make a terrible investment for any streamer right now. 
Netflix, Apple, Amazon, Google, for a lot of reasons. The most obvious is that any streaming services needs the scale of all of the RSNs. Currently, they're too spread out. Sinclair owns 19, NBC owns 7, Warner Brothers owns 3. There's a lot of individual ones. And you can see an example of a company that tried to buy a bunch of these. That's Sinclair. Um, they bought um, a bunch of RSNs for $10 billion in 2019. They are now deeply leveraged and worth only a fraction of that amount. So Oof. I outsourced my answer there. Does that make sense to you, Travis, a non-sports consumer? Um, <laughs> my boyfriend uh, loves college sports, and he is a subscriber to ESPN plus whatever. And mm -hmm. I'm always blown away that like any college basketball game you ever want to watch is somehow available to stream on the internet now. So yeah, I guess, I guess I have no understanding. You can cut this all out, Jelani. I have no, no I, I think, I think it's useful, business. right? Cause what, what ESPN did is lock up TV rights for all kinds of college sports. They have limited capacity to show all those college sports because not many people want to watch, you know, college lacrosse or whatever. But some people do. And what they found is you can take those rights, put them on the digital subscription platform, ESPN Plus, where there's an infinite amount of space. And then you get both sides of the equation. You get the the high profile, high demand stuff that you can put on your linear TV channels, which reach a lot of people, that that's that airspace is very precious. And then you can take the niche stuff, and this goes back to the niche question we had, where you have essentially unlimited shelf space, but you ask people to pay for that. Um, so people like Travis's boyfriend who want to pay for college sports will pay up. Yeah, see, my friends are on the other side of that where they do watch a lot of sports, and especially like, I don't want to say extreme sports, but like they watch a lot of MMA, we watch F1. There's definitely football fans and, and my friends and family, but not necessarily everybody wants to pay for all those services. So they use other ways <laughs> to watch them. So we should do a piracy episode in 2023 because it's Ooh, that's a good idea. It's it's, uh, it's coming back. Piracy. It's back. Yeah. Yeah. If you have an Amazon Fire Stick, you can watch anything. <laughs> it's what I realized. Jelani, I think the next question is yours. OK, cool. The, uh, this is from Ludovic from Europe. You have strong analytical skills, a deep knowledge of the media and tech environment, as well as one of the best possible networks in the industry. Didn't uh, mention how handsome I am. <laughs> uh, did you ever consider switching sides to work on the business side? If yes or no, why not? So you can answer that first question. And then can you give examples of guests you always wanted to have on your podcast but did not accept? Okay. Yet? No, I'm uh, I not really fit to do much more than what I'm doing right now, for better and for worse. Some people who in older days when I used to spend more time like writing about startups say, oh, you might be a good VC. And and there are, there are some crossover components to like VC and journalist. I think you do a lot of work by yourself. You're trying to find interesting people and things and learn about them and maybe tell other people about them. Um, I would be terrible at picking promising startups and or wooing them or telling them why my company should put money in them. Yeah, and every other business job that's ever sort of come my way involves me managing people. Mm. And I don't want to say I should never manage people, but I really should never manage people. <laughs> uh, that's you guys laughing because you know. You, you, can, you have a sense that I have a difficulty managing myself. My wish list of guests, 
I've gotten really great guests. I'm, I'm really, really pleased. I got to interview Steven Soderbergh. I mean, I can't imagine um, that that was part of my future many years ago. I would always like to talk to Stephen Colbert. Um, he strikes. Mm-hmm. I like all the comedy hosts, mm-hmm. um, but he strikes me as deeply interesting and humane, and I would love to talk to him about grief and, and many other things. Um, so he is right there at the top of my wish list. Who's on your wish list, guys? Hmm. Wishless. I mean, now that you're talking about Stephen Colbert, I would love for us to get like someone like Trevor Noah on, mm-hmm. or uh, even I mean, we've been trying to get Quinta. So hopefully, if she ever hears this, <laughs> she'll come on the show. But we've had some pretty great guests. I like a lot of my favorite entertainers have been on the show the past like couple years. So kind of like my wish list has already been fulfilled. We've had Jesus Amaro. We've had uh, Ben Schwartz, Jake and Amir. A lot of people that I grew up uh, admiring a lot, and we were able to get them on the show. So I'm I'm fulfilled at this point. Happy customer. I'd want if Bob Chapek exit interview. I want the real tea. Yeah, you know that's one of the things with with people who run companies is, and one of the frustrations I have with interviews and this kind of format is, oftentimes you finish talking to them and it's kind of a strained interview because they're limited to what they can say. We stop recording. They go, yep. well, what I couldn't tell you while we're recording and then they tell you <laughs> this part. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes it's why talking to people who are no longer running those companies is more interesting because they can be more expansive. So maybe we will come back to Bob JPEG at some point. We'll be right back talking to Peter Kafka afterwards from the sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. Okay, and we're back. I've made Travis and Jelani laugh during the break. But I can't share that story with anyone. Travis, do we have another question? Hey, PK. Longtime listener, first-time submitter. As a media podcaster, I'm curious what media, movies, music, TV, video games were most influential to you? What are your go-tos, top tens, desert island picks, yada, yada, yada? So most influential. Um, I'm just thinking of authors right now for some reason, and that is Michael Lewis, who I read in college, read Liar's Poker, and it had never occurred to me at that time that you could write about business in an interesting way, and it kind of blew my little mind. Um, And then after college, I started reading the Wall Street Journal because I had a job at a place that got the Wall Street Journal and had never considered reading the Wall Street Journal. And back in those days, this is pre-Rupert Murdoch, so it's a long time ago, they, that, the Wall Street Journal was a business newspaper. It was also basically 
a magazine that came out each day. And so they would have these amazing feature stories that really were barely about business or, or if at all. And I'm being really impressed with a guy named Tony Horowitz who won a Pulitzer for a series where he took the premise was, oh, jobs are coming back to America. Bill Clinton says the recession's over. These are the kind of jobs that are people were hiring for. And they were things like being, you know, a, a mail sorter or someone who was doing telemarketing or someone who was working at a chicken rendering plant. And he went and took all of those jobs. Um, and it's kind of stunt journalism, but it's also not stunty at all. It's literally just doing the thing and describing what it was. And I found that really eye opening. Um, and I've never done anything like that, but I, it was always impressed me that sort of the, the idea of that business journalism could be much more expansive than sort of a recitation of a merger or, um, an earnings call. And that's always been impressive to me. Um, yeah, I think that's what I got in my head right now. I'm impressed that you picked reading stuff because the question was movies, music, TV, and video games that you're said, like. said influential. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I think about. I mean, I really liked time bandits when I was a kid, but I can't really <laughs> tell you that that affected my view yeah. of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of stuff is stuff that I, you know, music and movies are, you know, things that mean a lot to you when you're a teenager in your twenties and then you kind of stop um consuming new stuff i think a lot of for a lot of folks um so it's more of a like sort of i don't know it's influential it's more of like when did you stop consuming new stuff um maybe <laughs> a more interesting question i don't know if that's more interesting jelani i think the next question is yours so this question comes from a very special guest that i'm pretty sure peter knows i'm gonna play this peter may have just sent money to <laughs> yeah hold on my name is Ben Kafka, and my question is, on what platform do you consume the most media? That is from Ben Kafka. That's from Ben Kafka, who has been on this podcast before and sent me that very earnest voice memo from the bathroom of his high school. So thanks for that, Ben. <laughs> oh, no. Um, he wasn't vaping. That's what most kids do. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. I am looking. This is not just top of my head. This is what Apple screen time tells me. Oh, no, Peter. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. I'm not going to tell you the total hours because those are humiliating. Um, but by far, it's Twitter uh, in terms of uh, hours per week. Then there's a game called Golf Clash, which is not really a platform, so we won't count that. And then TikTok. And then iMessage. And then podcast. So while we've been declaring Twitter dead and dying, et cetera, uh, obviously I'm still majorly addicted to it. And sadly it is my most important platform. I would have guessed TikTok, frankly, I feel like I spend way more time on TikTok than anything else these days and have to frequently, um, set a screen time limit. So I spend less time on it. Um, Twitter, I tried doing the same thing effectively by only being able to access it on my phone. Mm -hmm. That would slow me down, but instead I just keep my phone next to my laptop and that doesn't <laughs> slow me down at all. Peter, what is uh, TikTok serving up to you? Right now, a ton of soccer. Okay. Um, tons and tons of soccer. A lot of it is uh, in Spanish because it's Argentina specific. So I just sort of get the gist of what's going on. Uh, a lot of soft core, not pornography, but edging <laughs> close to it. Because uh, the, the genius algorithm has discovered that I like to look at attractive uh, people not wearing many clothes. Yeah, but it, it moves around. And I think, it you know, for all the, the I talk about this all the time, for all the vaunted algorithm 
discussion around TikTok. Sometimes I think it's much more basic than people expect. And it's like, oh, you mm. liked watching the Sopranos clip? Here are more Sopranos clips. So there was a period where I was watching a lot of the Sopranos, um, like three minutes at a time on my phone. Um, but that seems to have, have worn itself out. I watch a lot of Veep clips right now, which I do enjoy seeing. Yeah, I'm getting a lot of that 70s show clips right now because I liked a few. And now that's just all the algorithm is is serving me. Along it's what with, you uh, want, Jelani. It's your untapped desires. Along with the uh, Jenna Ortega interviews because I, I watched Wednesday <laughs> a couple weeks ago. So she's Oh, I didn't everywhere. know who Jenna Ortega was. Thank you for explaining yeah. that to yeah. me. Travis, what's in your TikTok? I've got um, the very specific people um, diving into pools from very high up. <laughs> how did you get on that side of tiktok i watched i don't know i just watched one video got served up to me by the algorithm and it was like would you do this and it's you know the angle is above the person on the diving board very 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 high up from the pool and then i watched it and i was like no i wouldn't do that and then it served up another one and i was so now (laughs) now i just get um clips of people doing crazy dives into pools oh you know who I'll, and then by the way i would watch those too you know who i've really uh who i actively seek out but they serve them up to me all the time now is a guy i don't know what his name is he's he's anonymous although you can see his face it's a cook it's a working chef who looks at other people's cooking videos and oh, comments I, on them i follow him as well he's and great. there's a yeah chef reactions and i mm-hmm. followed him relatively early and it's clear that he's a working chef who now I think has like 2 million followers. So it's getting to the point where I don't, it seems like he still has to work, but he certainly is able to make real money doing this. And it's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting and moving because he's acerbic and crabby and, and you can sort of see that that's a pretty accurate transmission of his personality, but he's also quite, um, I find it quite touching that he's, that he is moved by the fact that people enjoy watching him make fun of people's food. (laughs) Um, what do we think about this mailbag experience, guys? We want to do it again? Oh, yeah. I thought this was great. Sure. Okay. I love yeah. the questions people send in. Peter, can I ask you a dumb question? Oh, yeah, yeah. Why is it called Recode? Oh, um, there is an answer. Um, when so the, I previously worked at something called All Things Digital, which uh, Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg had started when they are at the Wall Street Journal. Eventually, Karen and Walt decided they wanted to leave the journal. Like they had a mutual breakup with the journal and go off on their own. And all, everyone who was working there came with them to start this new company. And we were trying to figure out what to call the company. And there were many bad ideas. And there were a bunch of good ideas. And it you turns out it's some a, of the original names. <laughs> um, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings um, <laughs> any more than I already have. But um, because they were all like tech news today or, you know, things that sort of were literal Mm-hmm. Um, and I biz. <laughs> yeah, and I was pointing out that you know a lot of a lot of the names that were in circulation at the time didn't really have t- to do. They weren't literal explanations of what the brand was. Like Quartz, which at the time was functioning, I guess it still is. Um, or The Verge, or there was a company called PaidContent.org, and so it kind of didn't <laughs> matter what you named your company because eventually people just associated that name. Um, with the content you make, which you can see another example of that with Axios. No one would have said Axios was a good name, and now people know what Axios is. But there was a, a hope that we could um, use code as a name. And it turned out that the code URL, I'm relaying the story secondhand, so if I get it wrong, my apologies. The code.com URL was owned by the guy who made kind candy bars. 
and was very wealthy. I love wealthy. that you called it a candy bar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank <candy>. you. <laughs> I mean, I get I get the ones that have six grams of sugar or five grams of sugar. Don't so pretend to be a health food. But they're a little, they're they're my nutritionist said I could eat the ones that have five grams of sugar or less, so I still eat them. But they're they're candy bars. Anyway, he owned the URL and that he wanted to save that URL for some venture that was going to bring peace to the Middle East. So that code was not available. And I remember when Walt Mossberg said, well, we, he took me aside, said, we have the name, we've got it, we've secured the URL, it's Recode. And I said, what? Is it like Rico, like R-I-C-O-H, like the copier? Or like Rico, like the Rico Act? <laughs> and Walt spelled it out for me and I got it and no one knew what it meant. And then for a while it, it meant a lot. And now it's probably going to mean something else. But that is that is the etymology of the name. Wow, that's amazing. I did not know that. <laughs> that's actually awesome. Guys, it's been a delight working with you this year and all the years previous. Thank you. Um, thanks to the audience for listening. Thanks to the sponsors for bringing us this excellent episode of The Mailbag. It is the end of December. We will see you in January 2023. Bye, guys. Happy New Year.